Welcome to the Be Better Podcast with Lee Barrison. True stories from Bakersfield's business owners and entrepreneurs. Lee is a local real estate broker that sold over 1,700 houses in almost 18 years. He is a husband, father, owner, and lead coach of Infinity Real Estate Services. And now it's time for the Be Better Podcast. What's up, guys? It's Lee Barrison here with the Be Better Podcast. And uh, I'm really excited about this episode because I'm going to share something with you that's very personal to me. Um, and it's not about business. It's not about, um, you know, it's not about sales. It's not about skills. Uh, but it's about my mom, Kendra Barrison, right? And the reason why I felt that it's important to share this topic with you guys today is because this is going to be a story about my mom, right? And me growing up as an adolescent. And more importantly, I wanted to share this story with you guys because I think it would, it may resonate for some of you guys out there uh, that may be struggling with a parent that is hooked on drugs, right? And so, you know, this is this 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 uh, podcast here is basically designed to really uh, raise awareness for anybody out there that may be going through that same thing, right? So. Anyways, my mom, Kendra, uh, was a great, great mom. You know, I remember as a child, uh, you know, I was heavily involved in Taekwondo. I was heavily involved in uh, soccer, right? And my mom was always the soccer mom, right? She was always the, the Taekwondo mom. She was always the, uh, the, the mom at PTA meetings, you know? Um, she was very, very involved in my life as a, as a child. And I gotta tell you that, you know, I, I have a lot of good memories um, when my mom, uh, when, when I was younger, when she was raising me as a child. And, you know, it's really interesting because she never really worked. She's a, she was a stay home mom. She was a homemaker and she did a damn good job, uh, taking care of her family, taking care of her home. And, um, you know, it's interesting, but when I turned 14 years old, uh, my mom met a friend. Okay. And you know, this, this lady, uh, showed up at the house one night and it was kind of odd to me because my mom really didn't have many friends. She was just basically a home a homemaker, right? Anyways, this friend introduced her to cocaine. Okay. And you know, lo and behold, uh, my mom's addiction began at the age of 14 when I was 14. Again, I'm a single child and you know, I don't have any uh, other siblings uh, to lean on. And so, um, you know, it was just, it was interesting to me as a child because of the fact that, um, you know, me and my mom were, had such a great relationship that I, I just found it to be very, very odd uh, that she now has a friend. And this friend, um, uh, lo and behold, introduced her to cocaine. So anyways, <clears throat> to make a long story short, you know, as time went on, her addiction became uh, heavier and heavier, right? She uh, graduated uh, to methamphetamines. And, you know, it's really interesting. I'm going to share some stories with you um, as I grew up with my mom uh, during these times. But, you know, she, um, she graduated to methamphetamines and, you know, she would disappear for weeks at a time right? Um, the only time that she would come home is if she ran out of money or ran out of drugs, and then she would basically forced, be forced to be, uh, to come home. So, um, you know, she got really bad with the methamphetamines. And 
at that specific time, I was probably about 15 years old at this time, um, but my dad uh, decided to uh, separate from her. He moved back down to Los Angeles, um, you know, and he never really looked back because my mom's addiction got so bad, right? So here I was at 15 years old, um, you know, I had a house to myself basically when my mom was uh, on drugs. And the only time that my dad would come back into town is, you know, on a Friday or a Saturday, buy groceries, pay all the bills, and then he would, he would take off back to Los Angeles for the whole week to work. So, you know, as a child at 15, you know, I was very determined to help her uh, get her act together, I guess the best way to put it, right? And so when she would disappear for, for weeks at a time, um, you know, I took it upon myself to go find her, right? And then, you know, she was pretty easy to find, to be honest with you, because she had a 1976 yellow Super Beetle Volkswagen. And, you know, uh, you, those, those are pretty easy to spot, I guess is the best way to put it, right? So with that being said, I would, I would go out on my own um, and I would go find her vehicle and find out where she's at. And so when I would find her, um, you know, there was, uh, there was some times when uh, she wouldn't, uh, you know, she wouldn't come to the door wherever she was, you know, located at that time or, or she refused to come home. And so, you know, uh, we used to, my dad and I during the weekends would hot, uh, find her, her Volkswagen and then we would hotwire it and then we would take it home. And then obviously she would, then she would uh, come home after that because she didn't have a vehicle and she was all pissed off, you know, because we took her car and so on and so forth. But it was kind of funny. So, um, you know, but yeah, I mean, I took the responsibility upon myself at an early age to, um, you know, uh, try to help my mom, right? Uh, there was a time uh, that, you know, she used to hang out at this specific house uh, on the corner of Sumner and Baker. And, you know, uh, one day my friend and I uh, uh, had a, happened to have a, a, a 22 pistol and we decided to take off and go find her. And so uh, uh, we found the vehicle and we knocked on the door and basically it was a long, uh, it was when we walked in, it was a long hallway and this poo butt uh, opened up the front door. I asked him where Kandra was and he you know, he pointed to the door that she was, uh, the, the room that she was in. And, you know, we, we knocked on the door a few times and we could hear people moving around in the room. So we knew somebody was in there, uh, but nobody answered the door. And so uh, basically my friend had this 22 pistol and, um, you know, he, uh, we're, we proceeded to kick the door in, right? And when we kicked the door in, there was about seven or eight people on this bed it all stood up and then all of a sudden my, my buddy came out with the pistol and put everybody down on the ground and uh, you know I told my mom come on let's go Kendra time to go home and she refused to go home she thought I was crazy she told me I was the one that was crazy and and so on and so forth but um you know it was just crazy back in those days because when I was you know 15 years old I don't think any child should have to you know uh, go off and try to find their mom or or go off and hotwire vehicles or put people at gunpoint in order to get her to come home. But I was basically relentless on trying to get her right, right? Um, you know, there was a, a few times that she overdosed on me, you know, at the house, you know, where, uh, she, you know, I, I, I had to bring her to, you know. Um, <clears throat> so as time went on, guys, right? As time went on, she, uh, she got, 
she even got worse, right? She started using heroin. And uh, when she started using heroin, that's when things got really, really bad, okay? Um, you know, she, I don't know how to explain it, but nothing, there was nothing of value in this world to her other than drugs, other than heroin at that time, right? Um, she, she would do basically anything she could uh, to uh, take heroin, right? Um, you know, and so uh, as she progressed into using heroin, um, you know, her body started deteriorating. Uh, of course, my dad was no longer around at that time at all. And I remember in the summer, um, it was summertime, and it was about, I was probably 16 at this time. And, you know, I had a cell phone, and, and my mom had a cell phone, and again, she disappeared for a few uh, weeks, right? And I haven't heard from her. And one day, uh, as I was driving, <clears throat> I decided to, you know, give her a call and, and see if she would pick up. And lo and behold, she did. She picked up, she, you know, I asked her, how are you, mom? She's like, I'm doing great, how are you? Doing okay, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen you, and, you know, is everything okay? And, you know, of course, she made it sound like everything was just great. Um, you know, she didn't really have much of an excuse of not coming home. Um, but you know, I asked her where she was, you know, like, Hey, where, where are you right now? And she says, Oh, I'm over at the motel six over on Weed Patch highway in 58. And at that moment I, you know, I flipped a U-turn and I, I kept speaking to her on the phone as I approached motel six. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, I, I was just fearless on, on, you know, doing whatever it took in order to get her, uh, get her home, right? Because I wanted to see her. Anyway, so uh, once I arrived at the Motel 6, I went into the manager's uh, office and I showed him a picture of my mom. And I said, do you know what, what room she's in, right? Um, and he basically, you know, pointed to the room. She's in that room right there. And I proceeded to go to the room, uh, knocked on the door. The blinds were shut, but I knocked on the door and um, uh, a guy, you know, swung open the blinds. With, he didn't have a, sh he just had Levi's on, but my mom was in the corner of the room, butt naked, right? Um, and, you know, he, I told, I told her to come outside and he started yelling at me to saying, you know, you want some of me? You want some of me? Through the window. And I told him, come outside, come outside. And so then, you know, he shut the blinds and, before you know it, he came out the front door and boom, I knocked him out cold, one shot. And then I, I told my mom, look, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And she says, you know, babe, I'm, I'm prostituting. I'm prostituting, I'm selling my body for money to get high. And at this moment in my life, I knew things were just so out of control with her. You know, again, her body was deteriorating. She was doing things like selling her body to get high and it really really affected me psychologically at that time because of the fact that you know no kid at the age of 16 wants to see his mom uh, in that position and so you know there was um uh, you know i can i can tell you that after that moment um you know i would i would also catch her uh walking the streets you know and and uh and again prostituting uh, in order to uh, support her habit. So, you know, time went on, guys, right? Um, she ended up going to prison for about uh, three years, or no, two years, I'm sorry. Um, 
And then when she came home, um, you know, she was sober for a moment. And then, you know, of course, then she went right back to using uh, drugs again. And, um, <clears throat> you know, she moved in with my grandma, my grandma Jeannie that lived down the street from us. And uh, she, she was just in bad shape again. You know, she was in bad shape. And, you know, at this, at this time, I'm, I'm probably like 19 or, or 20 years old, okay? Set to get married. Uh, mom's hooked on drugs. My wife, my future wife, could not stand my mom, you know, because basically I would, I would be so invested in her at all times that it really took attention off, uh, you know, my wife, the one that, that I love. And so there was a lot of conflict between her and I uh, during this time. Um, you know, but my mom, uh, I'm sorry, my grandma eventually passed away and my mom inherited, uh, some money and she also didn't have a place to stay anymore. Right. And so, uh, we convinced her to buy a house and she bought a house, uh, down on Alder street, Alder and 30th. And she lived at this house alone and, um, you know, uh, life went on, you know, she, she continued to use. Um, you know, I got married, uh, my wife and I started, you know, having children and, you know, basically we kind of went our separate ways, I guess is the best way to put it this time, you know, because I had more responsibilities of my own that I had to take care of. And my mom, uh, just wasn't one of those responsibilities as much as she was when I was younger. So anyways, to make a long story short, uh, you know, my mom continued to use and um, she overdosed uh, and uh, I remember speaking to her at the hospital and she says, okay, I've had enough, I'm tired, right? She was just tired of being tired, right? And so, you know, I told her, look, I mean, let's do what we gotta do, you know? And so she uh, committed to going to, or start to start taking methadone, right? And for those of you guys that don't know what methadone is, it's basically a synthetic heroin prescribed by a doctor, right? Um, basically it is heroin, right? But it's uh, legal heroin, I guess is the best way to put it. And, you know, she went to, started going to a methadone clinic, which I agreed to take her to every single day, right? Just, just to make sure that she doesn't use on the way home or use on the way there or, you know, and so on and so forth. And so um, I committed to taking her to the methadone clinic myself, every day right and you know people that are on methadone they they can't just like take it and get off right they have to start you at a certain dosage and then they taper you down over time right and i had to tell you man i i, I remember getting into arguments with the doctor because he he is you know the way he tapered her down was just so freaking slow it's like a turtle right and i i I firmly believe that the reason why they do that is because it's a racket, right? They, that's how they make money. They want to keep you on this stuff. So that way you keep paying them. And I'm, I'm just sick and tired at this point. Right? So I, I told the doctor, listen, let's just be more aggressive on the, the tapering of the dosage that you give my mom. Cause we need to hurry up and get her off this stuff. So that way she, that way we, she, she can get on with her life. Right? And so we did, we, um, we started, um, tapering her off methadone rather quickly. And you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't pretty, to say the least, to see her come off the, the dosage so quickly because it does affect your immune system, it does affect your body. 
um, you're in a lot more pain when you get tapered off a little bit quickly or more quicker. But the thing is, is that, look, you know what? We could suck it up. We can do this. And that's the conversations that we had. And we did. Well, as she got down to the end of her, her, uh, her cycle of methadone, you know, I started talking to her about, you know, you, you've got to start getting involved in church. You've got to start getting involved with, you know, groups of women, maybe perhaps that have been through what you've been through, you know, or you need to get a job, right? She's never had a job, guys. And so that was a tough one. But you got to do something because once you're off this, then you have to supplement or, you know, substitute all the time that you have with, with activities to keep you mentally strong and, and, you know, surround yourself with good people, right? Or people that have been through what you've been through. And, you know, unfortunately, she just never made that effort. And, you know, I think the reason why is, number one, she, uh, you know, she had low self-esteem, right? Uh, number two, she's never really been involved in scenarios like that because she was a homemaker her entire life and she really didn't have any friends and she really didn't, you know, uh, do things like that. But, you know, she should have. And the reason why is because as soon as she got off of the methadone, I think she was clean for um, about a good two to three weeks, right? And I tell you what, those two to three weeks were great, you know, and I, I still remember how clean she looked, how good she looked, how, you know, the eye contact, all this good stuff. And, um, you know, she, she was pretty, you know, and, uh, but those, those, that, that stint of being clean for two to three weeks didn't last long, right? She went right back and uh, relapsed and um, started using heroin again. And I remember, um, I remember shortly after she um, relapsed and started using heroin again, um, I remember getting a call from KMC, the hospital, and they said that your mom is overdosed and, you, you know, you need to come see her because she's in really bad shape. And um, this is kind of, kind of a pivotal time in my life, in my relationship with my mom at this point, because of the fact that I've done every single thing that I possibly can to keep this woman sober. And it just wasn't enough, you know. Um, and I remember uh, specifically driving to the hospital with my son, Noah, and we entered the hospital room and she was in really bad shape. She actually uh, paralyzed her, her, I think it was her left leg. And, and the doctor says that this is not going to go away. She's going to be paralyzed for the rest of her life. Right. And I think, you know, that, that really took a mental toll on her, knowing that she's put herself in this situation. But I was so pissed off. I was so pissed off at the fact that I've done so much for this woman and she can't love herself enough to stay sober for, for herself, um, for her grandkids. Um, you know, and it, it, it was just frustrating, you know, and, and I remember specifically telling her at, at that time that I don't ever want to hear from you again. Don't ever call me again. Don't ever uh, write me. Don't ever text me. Don't ever, you're never ever going to see your grandkids again until you sober up. And, and I walked out of the room that day. And that was the last time I ever saw her alive. And, um, you know, I, I regret telling her that because of the fact that I was the only person out there that still believed in her. You know, her family all let her go. You know, my dad let her go. And I was the only one left. And so at that moment, I, I told her, 
don't ever call, don't ever text, see you later. And we, my son and I, we left the hospital. And I remember that her and I, we didn't talk for probably a good, um, probably a good two months. And the holidays were coming shortly, right? The holidays were coming up, and this is in December. And um, I remember writing her a letter uh, because I haven't spoken to her. And obviously she's on the forefront of my mind every day. And so I just wrote her a letter apologizing, you know, for, for what I said at the, at the hospital room that day and, you know, reminding her that I love her and that I'm still on her team and, and that I'm still, uh, you know, in her corner and, and I just want you to get better. You know, that's all I care about. And I wrote her that letter hoping that I would get a phone call from her, right? Um, so I popped it in the mail. And at, during the same time, right, during the same time, um, at this time, I never really read books, right? And at uh, Valley Bible, Ron Vietti, the pastor there, brought up a book called Heaven in the Afterlife. And it was about, you know, 30 near-death experiences of people that have actually witnessed hell or witnessed heaven, and then they came back to tell about it, right? And man, I just read this book so, I, from front to back, probably in a week or two, right? For some reason, I was fascinated by this book. And, um, you know, I, I really think that that was God telling me that there is life after death, right? Because it was, it was ironic because I don't read books right now, right? But for some reason, I was heavily invested in reading this book front to back. And it was basically just a reminder uh, from God reminding me that there is life after death, right? Uh, and during this same time, right, during this two, three-week period, I was having a reoccurring dream every single night, every single night. And it was the same exact dream every single night. And the dream went like this. Um, you know, I, I would be somewhere, and I would call her, um, and no, I wouldn't get an answer. So then I would get in my car, and then I would drive to her house, and then I would... Um, you know, she used to have a mail slip in her in her front door where the where the postman would uh, stick uh, stick mail in, and I would I would look through that uh, that mail slip and she'd be laying there, like you know dead, and then I would wake up right, and then the next night I would have the same dream, recurring, recurring, recurring. Well, I wrote her this letter you know, apologizing for my, my behavior and, and, you know, telling her how much I love her and, and, you know, I'm still on her team and so on and so forth. And I hadn't heard, heard from her, you know, I hadn't heard from her in a, in a probably a good two weeks after writing that letter. And, you know, this is on December 17th. I mean, the holidays are right around the corner. She hasn't responded. So I figured, you know what, I'm going to reach out to her. Right. And so basically what happened was, uh, I remember, I was at my office and, um, and she, you know, I, I picked up the phone and called her. I didn't get an answer. And then I got my car and I started driving to her house. And on the way to her house, I started thinking about that dream. And I already started thinking, okay, this is, this is going to happen, right? And I remember going to her house, uh, knocked on the door, no answer. Um, you know, I didn't have to look through the mail slip because I had keys to her house, so I opened up the front door and sure enough, she was laying right where she was my dream that I was having for those two to three weeks. And um, 
that letter was on her countertop, on her counter, and it wasn't open. You know, it was there. Like she, she went out and got the mail, or she got the mail, put it on the counter, and and never got a chance to to read those words of mine. And so, you know, I guess this again, this this story is basically something that I wanted to share with you guys out there. Um, I think it's important to share these type of stories because of the fact that this is this this stuff really happens, you know. And if you're a parent out there. Um, and you're using drugs and you have children, um, if you can't do it for yourself, do it for them. You know, because I can tell you right now that I think about my mom every single day, you know, and I, I miss her a lot. And, and your kids don't deserve to have a parent that's hooked on drugs. And if you ha have a problem with drugs, then I would recommend getting help, okay? And again, if you can't do it for yourself, do it for your kids. And, you know, also this video is to raise awareness for anybody out there uh, that, that may be a child, uh, you know, with a parent that's hooked on drugs. Um, and just to let you guys know that you're not alone. I've been through it, you know, and, and it, it sucks, you know, it really does. But uh, it's all about perspective, you know, and, and again, uh, you know, if, if you have a, have a parent that's out there on drugs, then reach out to me. And I'd be, I'd be happy to, you know, help you and, you know, get through this, uh, you know, if, if you need help, all right? so. With that being said, I'm going to close this podcast, but I hope this resonated for some of you guys. Um, you know, it's all about being real, and this is uh, a real story of mine that I wanted to share with you guys. Um, I appreciate you guys listening to the Be Better podcast, and certainly hope that you guys are getting something out of this podcast. Uh, if, you, if you need to reach out to me, uh, go to BeBetterAgents.com, or you can find me on Facebook at Lee Barrison. I'm the only guy on Facebook with that same name. Uh, so with that being said, I hope everybody has a great and powerful day, and we'll talk to you soon.